my other favorite road trip story is from when I, uh, also, I, I guess all of my favorite road trip stories are from when I lived in southern Missouri. I was moving, uh, I, was, I was not moving, I was driving from Springfield, Missouri to a city in Arkansas called Blytheville. Uh, I was doing like a weekend uh, church retreat kind of a thing. And so I was driving through the bottom of southern Missouri, which is, uh, there's no interstate there. I'm all on state highways. And again, I'm navigating with a road atlas. So uh, trying to, you know, trying to figure out that this time Guhe, I was driving alone. So I didn't have my, my trusty navigator with me. And I think one of the most challenging things when you're not on an interstate is judging, uh, you know, how long it is to the next thing, right? On the interstate, you've got the mile markers counting down, you know, you know, if you're going to exit uh, 50 and you're at mile 25, you got 25 more miles, right? Uh, but when you're, on, when you're on state highways or even just sort of like backcountry roads through the Ozarks, it can be really difficult to know if you're getting somewhere. And for me, especially in the days before GPS, I was always worried that I would just drive past a turn. Uh, again, particularly when you're not on the interstate and you're not looking for an exit, you're looking for maybe just you know, a little street sign as you're zipping down the highway. And so uh, I have, at, the, at this point in my journey, I've gotten to the famous boot heel of Missouri, and now I'm headed south down into Arkansas. And I, I've gotten to that point in my trip where I, it feels like I should be there, and I, I, I haven't seen a, a single sign for Blytheville. And so I, I decide to stop and just double check that I'm going the right direction because the last thing I want to do is, you know, drive an hour in the wrong direction. Uh, and so I, I, I pull over at a gas station and I, I go in, you know, go into the attendant and I say, hi, I'm so sorry uh, to bother you, but I'm, I'm looking for Blytheville and I think that I'm, you know, I thought I was getting close, but I, I just, I'm not sure. And he kind of gives me like a, like a little bit of a grin and, uh, and, you know, in his very distinctive uh, northern Arkansasian accent, he goes, uh, never heard of a Blytheville. And I said, really? I'm my heart, like, my heart kind of, like, seizes a little bit in my chest. And I'm like, uh-oh. Like, when, when did I miss a turn, right? How, how long have I been going in the wrong direction? Because I, I thought for sure I was within, like, 15 or 20 miles of, of Blytheville at this point, right? So surely close enough. That, that someone who lived in the area would have, would have heard of it. And so I, I said this to him. I said, oh, no, I, I really thought I was getting close to it. He goes, there's a Blovel about uh, 15 miles down the road. And I said, Blovel? He says, mm-hmm, Blovel. And he points to it on the map, and yeah, sure enough, it's Blytheville, right? But they just, you know, they don't need all of the letters in that part of the country. Uh, and so I sort of thanked him. He kind of, you know, grinned at me to let me know that he was, you know, just pulling my leg. And uh, fortunately, I was headed in the right direction. I just, you know, needed to get a little bit further. And then, of course, once I got to Blytheville, all of the folks I was there to meet welcomed me with open arms, saying they were so glad I'd arrived in Blovell, Arkansas. Um, but I've, I've just, I've never forgotten the experience of, of that, because we just don't have that anymore in the world of GPSs and smartphones and all of that. I don't know that I'll ever have that same feeling of wondering 
if I'm headed in the right direction, of wondering if I've somehow missed a turn at some point, and wishing beyond anything else that I could have just, if I could have just seen a sign that said, you know, Blytheville, uh, 10 miles, you know, or 20 miles, or you missed it, turn around and go back the other way, whatever, right? Uh, it, it, was, it, it, was such, uh, it was such an interesting experience of emotions, right? That, that sense of hope mixed with anxiety, mixed with nerves, uh, that, that I haven't experienced on a road trip since we've developed these, these new kinds of technologies that we have that make navigating so much easier. Uh, and and as, I, as I was working on the message today, it was that peculiar sense, that blend of emotions that I kept coming back to. Because we're talking about today uh, how often it feels like in the life of faith that we're navigating without GPS, right? That we have, you know, we have some books and we have some uh, practices and we have some advice or wisdom from other people who have taken the journey before us, who have pointed in the direction that we're supposed to be going. But I think a lot of times we end up in that place where we feel lost, and we wonder if we have been headed in the wrong direction, or if we made a wrong turn, and we wonder uh, if, if we could get a sign, right? We, we wish that there was some spiritual equivalent to GPS or smartphones that would make it easier for us to know that we're on the right track. And, and so uh, I want to acknowledge those emotions and experiences today as we also uh, celebrate that what we're really doing today is looking at how we can learn to see Jesus as the one who is pointing the way to, the, to, to God for us, and how we can learn to look for the signs of his presence in our lives, pointing us to the direction that we're meant to go, and how it's often in those very experiences of feeling lost or angry or frustrated that we meet Jesus. Uh, so we're going to begin this morning by singing together. Uh, Guhei and John are going to come back. Or John, you never left, did you? You're still back there. All right, cool. Um, but uh, if you're a guest with us, I just want to say thank you for joining us this morning. We're so honored that you're with us. We hope you feel welcomed here at Catalyst and encouraged and challenged. Uh, we are going to be receiving communion here in a little bit. So if you are in the building, hopefully you got a communion cup from Sarah on the way in. Uh, if you are virtual with us, we still want you to participate in communion with us. So grab some elements from your home or from wherever you are, just something to eat and something to drink so that you can do, uh, participate in that with us uh, towards the end of the gathering. And for now, I'd like you to all stand with me as we worship together. We are in the season of Lent, which is the six weeks that the church sets aside to prepare for celebrating the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. And so during the season of Lent, we work hard to examine ourselves, to search ourselves for unconfessed sin, and to confess that so that we can be healed from that and so that we can, uh, again, be faithful to follow Jesus to the cross and then be united with him in resurrection. On... Uh, or sorry, for, for this year, our series is called Broken Promises, and we've been looking at a passage from the Hebrew Bible and, and a passage from the New Testament. And uh, these passages have, have reflected off of each other because they've traced the way that God has made covenants with the people throughout history. So, you know, we've looked at the covenant God made with Abram. We looked at the covenant God made with Adam. We looked at the covenant God made with David. Uh, and then we've seen how God's people failed to keep those covenants. And, and then we've also looked at, by looking at the New Testament, at how Jesus successfully keeps those covenants and how he expands our imagination about what's possible and what faithfulness can look like. 
So today we're actually sort of flipping the script a little bit. We've, you know, we've been looking at all of these different covenants. But we've been looking at how, how we often fail to keep those covenants. Today, I want to look at what happens when God doesn't keep God's end of the, the bargain, of the covenant, right? Uh, and, and this is something we've all experienced, okay, uh, where you pray for something, you know, maybe, maybe you're in line for a promotion, or maybe you need uh, a little bit of extra money, or maybe you've prayed for a loved one who's been ill and you've wanted them to be healed and, and those things don't come to pass, right? And, and you wonder what you did wrong. What the problem was, why God didn't come through the way God has come through for other people in similar situations that you've heard about that probably you heard uh, at church, you know? And, uh, and I know that when I say that we're going to talk about God not keeping God's promises, you sort of want to back away because lightning's going to strike me, right? It's also where I think as, as a pastor, I'm expected to rush in with platitudes, you know, saying something like, well, you know, everything happens for a reason, or God just needed another flower in his garden, or all of the terrible, terrible things that we say to people when, the, when we express those doubts, when we express that anxiety or that anger or that uh, grief that God didn't come through, uh, what, what we're tempted to do is just sort of stick a platitude on it so we don't have to feel those feelings too. And instead of doing that today, what I'd really like to do is actually sit with those experiences of betrayal, of anger, of doubt and questioning, because uh, those experiences are a lot more common in Scripture than I think a lot of us have been led to believe. And so uh, I think what we'll find is if we don't rush past those experiences, if we're really willing to be honest with ourselves and with one another, uh, we will actually find a way to point to God's presence in the midst of our pain in a way that I think is healing and invigorating and that uh, can actually renew and restore our faith. So uh, we're going to start in Ezekiel chapter 37. Uh, go ahead and turn there with me. And as you're turning to Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel is one of the major prophets of the, the Hebrew Bible. And he is one of the prophets, uh, you might remember we talked about Jeremiah a while ago as a prophet who lived through the exile. Ezekiel and Jeremiah were contemporaries. They lived and worked at the same time. And so the early part of the book of Ezekiel is a bunch of prophecies of Ezekiel saying, if you don't get your stuff in order, God is going to destroy you. God is going to send the Babylonians to destroy you, and it's going to be awful. There's this uh, really gut-wrenching vision that Ezekiel has of God's presence leaving the temple, which is a way of Ezekiel saying, God has abandoned you to what you want. God has, God has said, okay, fine, I'm out, right? I'm leaving. The, the covenant that I made with Moses is null and void, you know, where I came down from the mountain and lived among you. Now I'm going, now I'm going away again. Uh, the rest of the book of Ezekiel is Ezekiel pastoring the people after they've experienced the exile, because they don't repent, they don't do what God was calling them to do. Babylon does come and destroy them all, and Ezekiel lives through it, just like Jeremiah did. And so a lot of the back part of Ezekiel, instead of being judgment and condemnation, is actually hope that the story's not over. And that's where Ezekiel 37 comes in. Uh, this is a passage you've heard before. Uh, we have the little song about it, you know, the, the arm bones connected to the shoulder bone, the shoulder bones connected to the 
backbone, whatever, I don't know. I, my anatomy is not strong, uh, right? But um, it's, it, this is like, this is like uh, yeah, this is, this, is the, this is the most Tim Burton-y the Bible probably gets, right? And so I want to read this passage with you, uh, and I want you to hear, uh, honestly, the horror of the story, because there is a, there's a superficial horror where, again, straight up, this just sounds like the opening of a horror movie, okay? But then I think there's a deeper, more existential horror that, that, we can, that Ezekiel wants us to feel, and that certainly Ezekiel's original audience would have felt uh, before God goes on to address that. So let's begin reading in verse 1 of Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel says, the Lord took hold of me and I was carried away by the spirit of the Lord to a valley filled with bones. He led me all among the bones that covered the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground and were completely dried out. And then he asked me, son of man, which, okay, this is the thing in Ezekiel. Um, God doesn't ever call Ezekiel by his name. He calls him son of man, which was his way of saying like guy. He's like, guy, hey guy, guy. Can these bones become living people again? Oh, sovereign Lord, I replied. You alone know the answer to that. Okay, so here's the opening, right? Again, like I said, pretty messed up. Ezekiel is taken to a valley that is filled with human bones. Just nightmares start like this, right? Beyond the superficial terror of a valley filled with human bones... For Ezekiel and for his listeners, this would have had a, a, a secondary and honestly much worse connotation because they have just lived through uh, the absolute conquest of their nation by a, a big empire. And so this isn't like some random valley of random human bones. This is a battlefield. These bones are the remains of Israel's, or of, of, yeah, Israel's best and brightest. Those who were sent out to save the people. They were the armies of the Lord of hosts who marched out to save the day and who were utterly decimated. So these are literally the remains of God's people's hopes and dreams filling up this valley floor. And when Ezekiel says they were totally dried out, um, that's his way of, of saying they're old and they're desiccated, they're dried. Uh, again, this is in a pre-scientific world, right? They didn't understand death and decay and all of that. So there was some thought that if the bones still had, um, hadn't been completely dried out, that maybe the spirit hadn't fully left the body, right? So there was some hope of some kind of contact or remains. But, uh, when Ezekiel says they're completely dried out, this is they're, they're gone, 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 all the way dead right? You remember Princess Bride. He's not dead. He's only mostly dead. They're all the way dead. The only thing you can do is search through their pockets for loose change, right? That's, that's, that's the kind of dead they are here. And so God says to Ezekiel, is it possible for these bones to live again? And Ezekiel knows the answer is no, right? That's the obvious answer. But God has asked him this question, and so that must mean that God is up to something. And so Ezekiel doesn't say yes. He can't, he can't bring himself to hope. So he kind of settles on this like awkward middle ground where he says, I mean, you're God, you tell me. 
right? So he doesn't say no, which is the right answer. It's what, it's what everyone knows. Dried out bones can't come back to life. But he can't bring himself to say yes. He can't bring himself to hope. He can't bring himself to imagine the possibility that this end is not the end. That, that, that somehow God might not be done with God's people yet. He, he wants to believe that. Who doesn't want to believe that, right? But he just can't bring himself to it. After everything he's experienced, after everything he's gone through, after everything he's watched his people go through, he cannot bring himself to hope. The closest he can get is to say, well, I don't know, you're God, you tell me. Let's read what happens. This is the part you know. Then God said to me, speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I'm going to put breath into you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscle on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath into you and you will come to life. And then you will know that I am the Lord. So I spoke this message just as he told me. And suddenly as I spoke, there was a rattling noise. I mean, just, this is just nightmare fuel, right? Suddenly as I spoke, there was a rattling noise all across the valley, and the bones each came together and attached themselves as complete skeletons. And then as I watched, muscles and flesh formed over the bones, and then skin formed to cover their bodies, but they still had no breath in them. I'm not sure which is worse, right? A valley of bones or a valley of bodies. But now we have valley of bodies. And then God said to me, speak a prophetic message to the winds, son of man. Speak a prophetic message and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, O breath from the four winds, breathe into these dead bodies so that they may live again. So I spoke the message as he commanded me and breath came into their bodies. They all stood up and they all came to life and stood up on their feet, a great army. And he said, son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying, we have become old dry bones. All hope is gone. Our nation is finished. Therefore prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. Then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And when this happens, my people, you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you and you will live again and return home to your own land. And then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done what I said. Yes, the Lord has spoken. This beautiful passage that has become iconic for all of the right reasons, right? Where uh, the, the bones are reassembled into skeletons and the, the very process of death is reversed in front of the prophet's eyes, right? Um, they're undecayed, they're un. Uh, they're undestroyed, and they're, wo they're woven back together. They're created back into bodies. And then in this very conscious echo of the creation story in Genesis 2, God tells the prophet to have the breath of life be breathed back into their bodies, and they all stand up. And then God makes, in case we were not sure what is going on here, God makes the explicit connection to exile and says that, that this is now how they are being brought back from exile, returned to life, and possibility is being created again. So again, this is a prophecy. It's a dream. It's an imagining. It's spoken 
to a people who feels like the valley of bones, who says we are dried out and our hope is lost and the best days are behind us and there's nothing for us moving forward. To those people, God says, the best is ahead of us. I am doing a new thing. I am recreating you anew. I want to pause there. I want to hand it back over to our worship team. And I want to invite you to sing that with me. Because again, uh, if, if like me, you feel kind of like some old dried up bones these days, uh, this is what we need to hear is this fresh vision, this fresh imagining. And it's okay if it's hard to believe, right? This is a fantastical vision. Uh, part of the way we get there is by singing together and singing these things that we know are true and letting them work their way into our bones. So would you stand with me as we sing again? One of the things we don't give Ezekiel enough credit for is, I think, how innovative he is. Uh, because in his day, when he was offering this vision, the, his people didn't have a strong concept of resurrection. They thought once you died, that was it. You went to a place called the grave. Everyone went there, good or bad, it didn't really matter. And that was it. Uh, you never came back. And so this idea that God would bring people back from the dead because God had not fulfilled God's promises to them yet was radical in his day. It was this fresh, uh, provocative vision. Of course, by Jesus's day, it had become widely accepted that that was how God was going to fulfill the promises that God had made to David and to Moses and to Noah and to Abraham and to Adam that even though the people were faithless, even though that resulted in their death, God was so faithful that God would resurrect so that God could reward uh, the way God had promised. Uh, and, and so I think nowhere is, is the question of the nature of that resurrection more at, at stake than in John chapter 11, which is the New Testament text for today. So go ahead and turn over there with us. This is the story of the resurrection of Lazarus. And in John, so in, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the Synoptic Gospels because uh, Matthew and Luke used Mark as one of their primary sources in writing their Gospels, so they all kind of tell the same story. Uh, in, in those three Gospels, Jesus is like running around doing miracles all the time. It's just like his main thing, right? He's casting out demons, he's healing people, he's walking on water, he's doing all this stuff. In John's Gospel, Jesus only does seven miracles, and we know there's only seven because John counts them for us. Uh, the first one is the, the turning water into wine at the wedding of Canaan. And after Jesus does that, John goes, and this is the first sign that Jesus did. And then after the next one, he goes, and this is the second sign Jesus did. It was like, oh, we're supposed to be counting. Okay, right? And so as you, as you work through John's gospel, you notice that there are only seven. And it's not that John only thought there were seven. At the end of John's gospel, he says, and Jesus did lots of other stuff, and we just didn't write it down in this book. Don't worry. Uh, so again, John has an agenda here by presenting only these seven. And instead of calling them miracles, John calls them signs. Okay, they point. They're meant to show us something that's true about Jesus, about the nature of his work, about who he is. And the resurrection of Lazarus is the seventh sign. It's the last one. It's the, the big climax, okay? Uh, incidentally, healing the blind man, that, uh, the man born blind that we looked at last week was Sonia, that was sign number six, right? So this is the big seventh sign. And uh, in this story, we meet actually for the first time really in this gospel, three of Jesus's best friends. 
And there's a lot of debate about exactly who these people were and what their relationship with Jesus was, but it's clear that they were not uh, disciples in the way that the, the, you know, the 12 disciples are. Uh, they lived in Bethany, which was a suburb of Jerusalem. And uh, Jesus, apparently, as, as near as we can tell, he, he stayed with them anytime he was visiting Jerusalem. So, you know, it's like, oh, you've got a business meeting in Dallas and you crash with your friends in Rowlett instead of getting a hotel, right? Because, well, uh, that, that's kind of what was going on here, right? Jesus, anytime he came to Jerusalem, he'd stay with uh, Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. And so, uh, and then, you know, he would just like go into Jerusalem to do his business and come back or whatever. Uh, we can tell that they were close with him, that they had some kind of different relationship that seemed, again, more like a traditional, what we think of as a friendship than what his, his followers had that called him rabbi, called him teacher, right? And so in this story, Lazarus has gotten sick and uh, the sisters send word to Jesus. Because again, you would think if there are any perks at all to being really good friends with a guy whose central pillar of his ministry is healing, it would be uh, maybe not freedom from head colds, but surely at least if you have a severe illness that your buddy Jesus is going to handle it for you, right? Um, Mostly Jesus heals up close and personal, but there are stories where he heals from a distance, right? Where he says, yeah, uh, someone comes to him and they're like, hey, uh, so-and-so is sick, and he's like, nah, they're better now. It's like a Chris Angel mind freak thing, right? He's like, whoa, they're good. Um, so we've seen him do that. We've seen him heal from a distance. We've seen him do all this kind of stuff. And so they send word to Jesus that Lazarus is sick. Jesus says, thanks for the info. And the disciples are like, are, are we going to go? And he says, no, we're good. We're going to wait. He waits four days to set out, set out. And in the time that Jesus waits to begin his journey, Lazarus dies. So again, I mean, right there, there's your implied broken promise, right? There's some sort of covenant that we make in friendship with one another that, again, you would think at least extends to doing the things that you do for the people that you care about. Most of the people I know who own car dealerships, not that that's an extensive list, but like their families have nice cars, right? That sort of a thing. And so when Jesus finally arrives in Bethany, you can imagine the kind of hurt, betrayal, grief that his sisters are experiencing. And again, that's, that's where I want to hang out in the story today. Uh, we're not going to read all of John chapter 11. I'll leave that for you to do this week in, in your times of, of spiritual practices. But I just want to read um, and, and see what's happening with his sisters. Because again, I think... I think there's something really important going on here. So so let's read beginning in verse 17 of John chapter 11. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days, already been dead for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. They were apparently movers and shakers in Jerusalem. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord... If only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know God will give you whatever you ask. There again, there's, it's, it's so close to what Ezekiel does, right? She can't quite bring herself to say, do the miracle I want you to do, right? Raise my brother from the dead. She's just like, 
I know, I know God will give you whatever you ask. And then like, that's, that's that same sort of like almost trying to hope. So Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And again, this at this point in uh, the history of God's people, this is just good, a good theology lesson, right? And you see Martha says, yes, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. And then Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. And anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? And again, I'm just trying to picture myself in Martha's shoes, grieving her brother, knowing that Jesus could have saved her, and how this sort of just feels like a platitude, right? But he asks her, do you believe this? And she says, yes. I have always believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. It's so difficult for Martha to hope. And, and again, I just think it's beautiful that here in this space, she has the space to voice the tension that she feels, the anger that she feels towards Jesus, the grief that she feels at her brother's loss, the hope that she has that somehow the end you know, is, is not the end, that she will see her brother again one day. She's able to say all of the things that like, we know are the right answers that don't feel like the right answers in the moment. And Jesus honors those things. Of course, I think the tricky part about this particular story is that then Jesus turns right around and raises Lazarus from the dead. So Martha says all of these things, but then she, she gets what the rest of us don't get in this scenario, which is the thing that she really wants, which is her brother back from the dead. And honestly, I think that's a, that's a difficult thing for me to confront in this text when I try to use it uh, in a space uh, where things are hard. Because the reality is God doesn't always, uh, you know, pull the rabbit out of the hat and just, you know, wave his hands and fix things. At least not like he did here. That's where I think it's important for us to remember that for John, each of these seven miracles is a sign, right? And a sign is meant to point us, to assure us that we're on the right path, to orient us when we're not sure that we're going in the right direction. And so when Jesus says, those who are in me will never die, and then he raises Lazarus, it's proof that what he's saying is true. It's, a, it's like a sneak peek of what is in, uh, in store for the rest of us, okay? It's not God saying, see, Martha had all the right answers, and she had enough faith, and therefore, I did what she did. And if you don't get the same result as Martha, there must be something wrong with you, okay? That's not what it's saying. That's not what it's saying. It's a sign. It's meant to point us to the Jesus who does not rush past our grief, Okay, because it, it's it's easy it's easy to look at the story and say, see, uh, Jesus Jesus is the answer. He fixes everything if you just have faith and believe, and use this story to shut down grief and questions and anger and doubt. But Jesus doesn't do any of that to Martha. He doesn't scold her. He doesn't say, "Oh, you of little faith," right? In fact, uh, you probably know this, right? Because this is a story that, that's pretty popular. Immediately after this, Jesus goes to Lazarus' tomb, and before he has the stone rolled away and calls Lazarus out, he weeps. Right? He grieves his friend. He, he sits in the emotion of everything. He sits in the pain and the anguish and the doubt and all of that, and that's part of the sign too. Okay? 
I think the good news of this story is that when, when we have the courage to be like Martha, to say, Lord, if only you had been here. That's the moment when we find Jesus' presence among us, working with us, bringing the world back to a place where the Lazaruses are alive, where the dry bones live again. It's when, that means we can ask that question by faith. And we can find Jesus with us. We can find him working. And we can know that in the end, all will be well. And so you know how the saying goes, right? So if things are not well, then it's not the end, right? God has more for us. So I want to bring us to the table today, and I, I want to offer this as yet another tangible sign of Jesus' presence with us. And again, it's worth remembering that when we come to this table, we come to the table that Jesus was sharing with the disciples the night before he was killed, right? So Jesus is leading the way for us, not out of death, not out of pain, not out of questions, but directly into the heart of all of those. And this is not something that we have to do on our own, but God goes ahead of us and before us and comes beside us walking with us, inviting us after him. And so you too are welcome to this table today uh, with our questions, with our doubt, with our grief. This is the place where Jesus invites us to say, Lord, if only you had been here. Because it's in asking that question by faith that we find where he truly is and how he is truly with us. So before we come to the table, I'm gonna lead us in a prayer of examine. I'm gonna give us some questions and uh give us some space to reflect on those. Then I'm going to pray for all of us together. We're going to receive communion together, and we're going to sing one more time. So here's the first question I want you to consider. Think about the week that has brought us here. When have I sensed God's presence in this last week? Now, what difficult circumstances have kept me from God in recent weeks? Now think about the week that's ahead of us. What questions or emotions or circumstances might keep me from God in this next week?
Finally, how can I engage honestly with God in this next week? Let's pray together. God, you have gathered us today to hear the bold, radical imagination of your prophet Ezekiel, who chose to believe against all odds that your story in the world, your work with your people was not finished. You gathered us to hear the witness of your servant Martha, who was not afraid to be completely honest with you, who she named a friend. We confess that it can be difficult for us to know how to respond in faith when it feels like you have not been faithful to us. And so we're, we're grateful to see these two stories where we see even your faithful servants struggling to hope and struggling to believe and offering half-hearted promises and imagination and still being met where they are because I believe we know that we, we can be met where we are. Thank you for the grace that you give us to do so. Thank you for meeting us where we are and thank you for bringing us to this table. As we receive these elements today, we pray that they would be a spiritual food for us, that in receiving them together, we might be bound together as your people and breathe new, have new life breathed into us by your Holy Spirit and sent back into a world that is in desperate need of your hope. We offer these prayers now and we approach your table in the name of your son, Jesus. The night Jesus was betrayed, this was the meal that he shared with his disciples. And it was during that meal that he broke bread and gave it to them and said, this is my body broken for you, take it and eat it. When the meal was finished, he gave them a cup of wine and said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and drink it. And so now we too eat and drink. And as we do, we remember Jesus' death. Uh, friends, as we're going today, I want to thank all of you who are continuing to give here at Catalyst. Uh, and if, if giving is something you want to start doing, we have a secure giving portal in the description for the video. Or, of course, we have our timing box or we have our secure giving app. We have lots of different ways to give. Uh, so thank you again to those of you who are continuing to do that. I uh, also want to thank all of our volunteers, especially Guhei. Good job today, leading first time. We really appreciate it. Um, yeah, we really appreciate all of you uh, making this space available to us week after week uh, and for enabling us to, to do ministry here. We're, we're very grateful for you. Uh, now, as you're going, you know, we, we kind of just read snippets of both of these passages, both Ezekiel 37 and, and John 11. And uh, I, I find it really fruitful to read them together. And so throughout the week, you might uh, set aside some times to, to do that. Uh, read, the, read through those together and just really put yourselves in those spaces, the spaces of Lazarus's sisters, the space of the prophet Ezekiel as he's being led to this vision, and uh, allow this space to really speak to you. Um, and I also know that not everyone is in a space where they feel like they're dried out bones or they're grieving like Mary and Martha. And I, and I know that. And sometimes when we have 
uh, messages like this, you kind of are like, oh, do you like have to be sad to be a Christian or something like that? And I would say, of course not, no. Um, But it's important for us to be able to acknowledge these parts of our lives, especially because I think far too often in in faith communities, we're uh, both explicitly and implicitly told to, you know, put on a fake uh, smile and, and fake it till you make it. And these are good reminders for us that uh, God welcomes all of us, the whole person, um, and, and there's no uh, sort of like prerequisite emotional state that you have to be in to, to worship and to connect with God. I think far too often we allow uh, quote-unquote negative feelings to, to feel like they disqualify us from having a relationship with Jesus. So if you're not in a bad place right now, um, I would con- encourage you to consider what it looks like for you to be a good, faithful friend to someone who is. And if you are, of course, I hope that you can receive this message as an encouragement that God is with you and God is working. And it's the times that we don't see and experience that that, that are the times that require faith. Uh, and so I, I would encourage you to respond in faith this week. And, and, and I, I think you'll be surprised at how you find God uh, showing up in places you least expect. So if you'd stand with me, I'd like to dismiss this with a blessing today. Uh, Catalyst, as you go today, would you go knowing that the God who made that original covenant with you is continuing to be faithful to that, even when it doesn't feel like it, even when it seems difficult to discern, uh, go knowing that you can trust this God uh, to be faithful to, to the promises that God made to you and that God is going with you, beside you, uh, and ahead of you into the world around us. Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We will see you next week for Palm Sunday.